Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Anyway, it's really good to see all of you. It's really nice to be back in Florida. And uh, I trust our time together in God's Word will be of uh, mutual blessing and benefit to all of us. Um, I'm going to begin with this uh, slide here. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a course this year. It's one of these courses, Do At Your Own Pace. And I'm usually good at this, but I'm just so busy. Uh, Canada opened up wide, so like work is just through the roof. Um, and so it's hard to keep up with all your responsibilities that you have. But this course that I started earlier in the year, uh, just in little glimpses of it, it's a biblical course, but I, I have found it to be uh, extremely helpful. And it's on the subject of worldview. Not sure if you've thought of worldview or what the subject uh, uh, entails. I look at this audience and many of you have glasses, so you are looking through a lens. Some of you might have contact lenses and you're looking through that lens. And some of us were privileged to have good eyesight, so we look through the natural lenses that we've been given. As human beings, all of us have a unique worldview. You could come from the same home. There's five De Silva's here. We all have a different worldview. Whether you're a boy or a girl, depending on who your parents were, depending on the country you were born, depending on the economic circumstances, all of us have a way that we see the world. My grandparents, uh, they were children in Europe during World War II. The way they saw the world was very different than the way I saw the world. I mean, there was no uh, amount of food at home, no matter how bad the food looked, that it could be salvaged and used because they believed in the maximization of all resources. Why? Because they lived in a world where their resources were heavily restricted during the war. My children don't remember 9-11. I was in first-year university. I remember exactly where I was when 9-11 hit. It changed the way we travel, at least by plane. The way we travel today has never changed since 9-11. All those new security enhancements and all came as a result of it. So most of us here grew up understanding that seismic change. It became part of our worldview and understanding. The pandemic. Everybody here, including Joanna, the youngest in the audience, will forever be influenced by the pandemic. Whether you liked it or didn't, agreed with it or not, whatever the case might be, we will always be affected by those events. Uh, people lost their jobs or people were sent home or worked from home or kids were sent home from school. The world changed for us and that becomes part of a worldview. So worldview is a very, very important subject. Worldview enables us to understand people better. We don't have to always agree with people, but if you want to have relationships with your neighbors, your children, your cousins, your whoever, you're going to have to learn to tolerate other people's worldview to some degree. Uh, worldview is important in our understanding of uh, the world around us, in understanding others around us. And as a result of it, even when we disagree, we might be able to at least for a moment step into someone else's shoes and try to figure out why it is they think what they think. We just sang a very patriotic song about America. America is made up of many different citizens that have very different worldviews. The only way a nation can stay together is that even with opposing worldviews, you've got to find some common ground. It's important. Family life's important that way. Um, I will say the uniqueness of worldview is like a snowflake. God has made us all unique. I believe he meant for us to all have our own circumstantial worldview, uh, our own way of the world was. But as Christians, he wants us to be unified still. 
So he wants me to bring my unique set of gifts and talents, bring them to the table, be part of a local community, and as part of that, learn to get along with one another. After all, if everybody was exactly like me, either we would get along perfectly or we would never get along, right? It would be one extreme or the other, right? So it's important as Christians that we understand the uniqueness of our personage, who we are as people, and yet recognize that we've been called to be brought together. Now, the last thing I'll say about this, and I'm using this in my introduction because of the story that we're going to cover. Jacob, I might need you to be my human remote. Oh, you know what? Uh There we go. Okay, let's see if uh, laser works. Okay, laser works. So, you are here. Worldview is what is real to us in our minds. And it influences everything about what we do or say. Our beliefs, what we believe is true in the world, is as a result of what we believe is real. Our values, what we think is good and not good, and by the way, today's story, we're going to see a little bit of that play itself out. Our values are all about what we think is real, how we see the world. And finally, though it's not here, our actions are tied to what it is that we actually do. A lot of people say, I believe something, but they never actually do it in action. James, the apostle, would say, well, you've got a problem with that as a Christian. You can't claim one thing and do another. And so this worldview, this subject of worldview, actually tells us who we really are, what we think is true in the world, what we think is good in the world, and what we do in the world. This is important because today, and whenever we do study the Bible, it is important that we go back and understand the worldview of the Scriptures. And the reason why that's really important is this. If I take a 2020 mindset and I pick up my Bible and decide to read it from a 2020 mindset, I will probably make some serious, serious mistakes because I don't understand the people that God was speaking to here. And if I can understand who he was speaking to and what exactly he's telling them, and that comes to life, then I might actually be able to apply that truth for me today. That's part of what we do in biblical hermeneutics and studying the Bible and understanding God's truth. If I just take the Bible and read exactly something, you know, easily can take something out of context and then devise a whole idea of who God is, that's nothing about who God really is. So this is a very important part of how we study the scriptures. And today we're going to look at this story and I want to consider it um, from hopefully, maybe in some ways, a new vantage point, but one that will bring the story to life and one that will help us enact on how it is that we're to live. The local assembly that I'm a part of, we're very multicultural, but we come from a, a city that's very multicultural. So we have a lot of Westerners, but we have some Easterners as well, from Iran, from uh, uh, India, and uh, many times they will say things, or sometimes when I study God's Word and I try to find out what, the, what, what was really going on, I think it's like some new thought, and I, 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 I present it. And then after, one of them will come and see me. It's like, that's exactly how I used to live in Iran. Like, that's how they've lived for thousands of years. And when, with our Western mindset, we sometimes take these wonderful stories and we actually misunderstand them. And if we misunderstand them, we might actually miss the point. And I hope today from this story, we will actually get back to what the Lord Jesus was actually talking about. 
Now, our brother already read the, the, the verses, and I appreciate the version that he read. I appreciate all versions of the Bible uh, that can br- bring value to our understanding. But uh, some areas, some translations have done better than others. And the New King James, and I have in front of me ESV, does a good job in this area. I've been reading through the NLT. Sometimes it's good just to switch it up, just to cause you to actually read it and think about it again. Because we can get so used to the words that we just fly by and we don't actually know what, what it's saying. But the NLT in this case doesn't actually do a good rendering, in my opinion. It does a very Western uh, mindset. And what we heard today, if understood, is, is more from an Eastern mindset, which is the way Jesus spoke to not only was he Eastern in his mindset, but to the people he was talking to. Now, I'm not going to read all the, uh, the story again. It was uh, well read. Uh, but I, I just want to, I would like to read something. So I'm going to read just a few verses prior to it. In the beginning of Luke chapter 19, we have the famous story of Zacchaeus and his conversion story. And it's at the end of his conversion story, in verse uh, uh, number 8, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restored full fourfold. I mean, this is a Jewish way of saying uh, something big has happened. Conversion has taken place. We were talking about that earlier. This is what's happened here. You know exactly what, what, what he owed. He's just telling you, my whole life has changed. I recognize the Savior. I recognize the King. And he says that, and in verse 9 it says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then from that beautiful story, we go into this, this story that Jesus is going to tell. And uh, we already heard the words, but I'm going to read them again. Verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a story, a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now that's interesting. So the people in Jesus's day that saw Zacchaeus convert in their minds the kingdom was here why because if 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 a tax collector could come back to god then the messiah must be here and we're going to see the expansion of his kingdom that's what they were thinking and in jesus's mind he perceives because he knows everything he perceives what they're thinking and he wants to set the record straight he wants them to recognize there's a tension that's going to go along and what we enjoyed that this morning the tension between the suffering savior and the reigning king they want to skip it to the reigning king and we as humans always want to skip it to the end right we don't want to eat our vegetables first we want to eat the good stuff and then hope the bad stuff just goes away and they didn't understand that. And so Jesus, for that reason, he tells this story. And it's an incredible story. And I hope to, to bring a little bit of that story to life. Now, the one thing I will say before I move on to the next slide is it, uh, you sometimes hear it's the parable of the 10 talents or the minus, or, or in this case here, I put the parable of the 10 servants. Trivia question. I know you all know your Bible really, really well. How many servants in the story does Jesus actually talk about it's not 10 of them it's three of them so why would he tell a story about 10 if we never going to talk about 10 one of the reasons is because in an eastern mindset all the numbers mean something and 10 means the whole group so jesus is going to tell a story about a kingdom and about all of his servants so the first lesson simple lesson is that we're all part of this story so it's not just about three other people two good guys and one bad guy it's about us too and where do we fit as part of the story? So I want you to remember that as we go through it. 
Uh, I read this, uh, I don't know how long ago, maybe a year ago, Kenneth Bailey. He wrote, Our interpretation of Scripture must never be closed to correction and revision. To do so would allow pride to settle into our biblical understanding, and that is very dangerous ground. All I can say to that is, Amen. Humility is at the forefront of Christian maturity and development. If, Zacchaeus, if, if, uh, if uh, Nicodemus thought he knew it all, he wouldn't come to Jesus by night. Something about the man that had a humble spirit. He wanted to know more of who Jesus was. He knew you must be a teacher come from God. Nobody could do what you've done, right? He, he recognized that. When we get to the point where we, 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 we think we've reached the top, think again. Think again. What we need is like, you can just come see me after and I'll just pop that balloon for you because I'm sure there's something you don't know. So humility is required. And actually, I enjoy humility because there's always something new that I learn as a result of it. This story has often been presented from a Western worldview and not from an Eastern worldview. And so we're going to go through the story. We're going to talk about all the characters that, that the Lord Jesus talked about. And I hope to bring each of them to life. And at the end of the story, leave you with the main thrust. There is one main thrust, I believe, that comes with the message that Jesus told. Now, the beginning of the story, Jesus talks about a nobleman. I like the picture of that guy. I don't know exactly what the Lord had in mind, but the story begins with a nobleman. And the nobleman is a, is a person of great status in society. In fact, it's likely a person who's connected himself to royalty. If not, he is a rightful heir himself. So Jesus begins this story. Remember, the people of the day, they're thinking, if Zacchaeus could be converted, then that means that the kingdom is here. Messiah must be here. And so this story is going to start off really, really well. Nobleman, it's what we're waiting for. We've been waiting for this for a very long time. And the nobleman finds his way on the pages of the story. First thing uh, we, we learn, and this is an interesting one, is the anticipated fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God is in the unknown future, and Jesus says it will be a while. Now, doesn't the end of the Bible say Jesus is coming quickly? Yes. Do I believe Jesus has come right now? Yes. Do I believe it was all, it's also been a while? Yes, because 2,000 years have transpired. You see, the interesting thing about God's word is that you have to take all of its subjects in its tension. What Jesus actually taught clearly is that we don't know when. That's the key. Not even the angels know. Only my Father in heaven knows. And so we, we got to go back to Scripture. This, the reason why I say this right from the outset is for this purpose. The last 2,000 years haven't taken God by surprise. It's an unknown time. But at any moment, He will return. So that's the first thing we learn about the nobleman. The next thing we learn about the nobleman is that there are resources for fulfilling the master's commands, and these are gifts for which the servants are accountable to the master. We as Christian individuals, we as a local church community or as local church communities, we are responsible for figuring out what our gifts are that God has given us so that we can use those gifts for his glory and use them to benefit others around us. And gifts come in all shapes and sizes, and if you're not utilizing your gift, you're not helping the group. Family of five, if Joanna doesn't use all her gifts, the rest of us will feel the difference of that, I can assure you. Same it is in church community. We are responsible to know the gifts that God has given to one another. I'll talk a little bit about those gifts a little bit later on. Now, I want to talk from an Eastern mindset on the nobleman. From a Western mindset, we're used to someone running for uh, office. In your country, someone seems to always be running for office, even if they're not, because in every cycle, there seems to be another cycle soon approaching. In our country, the cycles tend to be a little bit less, and we're only allowed to have a cycle of 
um, I guess, an election period of about six weeks. So you can't have signs, you can't have other things, only with a six-week period. I know you guys would die because you're, you you got to see signs all the time and people are always doing something, right? When I, I, I love watching... I love watching American politics and news. So at the end, when, a, when, a, when a, someone is elected to be president of the United States, the, the, the political pundits are already talking about the next election, right? It's, it's a whole business model. It's all built that way, right? And the last thing we would think about from a, Western, from a Western culture is what Jesus actually taught in this story. The nobleman shows up. He tells everyone he's, a, he's the king, so not elected official, much higher standard than that. I am going to be king, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to go into a far country. I'm going to finalize everything, and then I'm going to return again. We are not used to that in Western culture because when someone is an elected official, within a few months, they're already putting together their team and their cabinet, and before you know it, the inauguration takes place, and they are in power. We are not used to someone establishing something entrusting people with resources, and then going on on a journey and promising to return. But that's exactly what the people in Jesus' day were used to. So I just want to bring us back to that. Here's a number of Herods. I'm only going to talk about a few of them. Herod the Great. Let's start with him. Herod the Great uh, married into the Hasmonean dynasty. They were the ones that were uh, uh, connected to the Maccabees uh, rebellion from that family. And uh, as a result of being connected with that family, there came a moment in around 40 uh, BC where he told dignitaries and those who were his friends in in Palestine, he told them all that I'm going to go to Rome and I am going to secure kingship over all the land. And so he would have likely entrusted people to his resources, to his lands, make sure you farm them properly, make sure you collect the interest required on my money in the bank, make sure this, make sure that, and he would have established it all, and then he would have went on a very long journey all the way to Rome. And if you know history, when Herod the Great got to Rome, he presented himself to uh, Augustus Caesar, that was Julius Caesar's adopted son, and after presenting himself, Augustus gave him what he wanted. And he returned as the conquering king. And of course, if you were his friend and you were entrusted with his gifts and talents and you did a good job, I'm sure you were rewarded for it. If you did a bad job, there's problems, right? In fact, the most dangerous time for you, the citizen, is when your king announces it, leaves, and you'll wait for him to come back, okay? This is the, this is the I hope you see where this is going because... This is exactly the story of the Bible, right? So that's Herod the Great. About 36 years later, when Herod the Great died, right after the time of Jesus' birth, we all know he tried to kill the Lord Jesus as a little baby. When he died, his son, Herod Archelaus, decided he was going to do the same thing. Now, if you read biblical, uh, even from the biblical record, you know that Herod the Great's kingdom was split into pieces. His, his, his sons, they were all stepsons of each other. Archelaus was one, Philip was the other, and Antipas was the third. They were given versions of Herod the Great's kingdom, but it was always a vassal kingdom under Rome. So they never had true independence. They were just kind of like the local mobster with the godfather back at home, right? Something of that, of that nature. So 
Herod Archelaus decided he was going to turn on Antipas, his brother. He was going to turn on Philip, his brother, half-brothers. And he decided, because he was entrusted with the land of, of Judea, Antipas was entrusted with Galilee, which you should all know from the biblical record, by the way. And Philip was entrusted another section, I think, to the east. So he decided he was going to go back to Caesar Augustus, because Augustus was still Caesar, and he was going to do what his dad did. He thought he was going to take more power and more control and take what his father once had. So he passed his resources. He passed his gifts. He entrusted it with his friends and his servants and his dignitaries. And he said, I am making myself the king of the land. I'm going to go back to a faraway land. And when I become king, officially, I will return. Except when Archelaus went out to see Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus didn't like it. And he banned him. And as a result of it, that piece of the land was not given to anyone. Instead, a Roman prefect was put in its place, and that's why we have Pontius Pilate, right? These are the political systems of the day. When Jesus tells this story initially, the people of his day clearly understand what he's saying. The nobleman is presenting who he is. He's entrusting people with his gifts. He is going to leave and go in a faraway land, and in a soon-coming day when we least expect it, he's going to return again as the conquering king. Remember, the, the, the verses before, they thought it was all going to come now. He's realigning their mindset to tell them there's a much bigger picture than you think. Just like you said this morning, it's a bigger picture. Suffering Savior, conquering king. If you ever study from a Jewish mindset, most of the Jewish Orthodox people today have now divided the Messiah concept of the Hebrew Scriptures into two people. They, they call him Messiah uh, ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. Ben Joseph being a suffering Messiah and Ben David being a conquering Messiah. And in their minds, they think that both will one day happen. They don't know when or how. And the only difference between them and our mindset, our worldview, is that they're the same person, right? They can't put those two pieces together. But we have put them together because of what Christ himself has revealed in coming. So from a nobleman perspective, this is an easy understanding for them. This is exactly the culture in which they left. Someone would present themselves as the king, but they would leave they would receive everything they were to receive in a far country, and then in a soon coming day, they were, they were to return. All right. Now we're going to move on from the nobleman to the faithful servant. Two faithful servants are identified in this story, though there are 10 in total. And for each of them, there are obviously very, very common threads. Number one, the nobleman's primary expectation for his servants is courageous public faithfulness to an unseen leader in an environment where some are actively opposed to his rule. In my home assembly, I use this example because there's a number of Iranians that are uh, believers in our local church. Some of them were saved back home. Some of them were saved when they came to Canada. And uh, so they would understand this. Though I'm kind of young to remember when the Shah fell in Iran, imagine that era. Imagine the, the Shah leaving the land and entrusting a bunch of people to his assets in Tehran. I run the royal rug of whatever you know, company. How do you think I'd be treated? If you remember the stories of how the people were running and you think I'd be treated well or do you think I would actually be persecuted? See, the interesting thing about this story is Jesus told us exactly what would happen to us as believers, that we would not be well received, but we were called to be courageous in our faithfulness to him. It's a very, very important point. See, if we, if we, if we, if we miss that, then we, we, we misunderstand what our responsibilities in Christian life. Now, Christian life doesn't mean just being obnoxious in some 
I was going to say something bad, but some, some bad person out there who just likes to cause trouble and tell everyone they're wrong or right. It's the person that's willing to enact justice in their surroundings. It's the person who stands up to a bully. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but that's really hard to do, right? It has to do with being kind to someone when they're not really kind to you. These are the acts that actually show what it means to be a follower of the king, because that's exactly what the king did. You know, I look at today in the news, and you think of all these political subjects, and if you threw one in there, it would be like, oh, how's everyone going to react to it? You know, they try to do that with Jesus all the time. Maybe a little lesson for all of us. He didn't bite anytime. He always found a different answer, one that they all went, huh, no one ever talked like this guy. I, I don't know what to do about it, right? As Christians, can we be those kinds of people? By the power of God's Spirit, we can. When I think of a political situation that comes up, and, and you've got two different people in the room, and they want your opinion. Can I find a way to calm them both down and bring them more to an understanding of who Jesus is? That should be my call in life. That's not easy to do because we're, we're grounded by the kingdoms of this world, though we're supposed to be different from it. We are grounded by it a bit because of our humanness. But we were called to be better. We were called to be different. So courageous service is required. It's not going to be easy to do. The other thing is, and this is an important question, this is where Eastern mindset is important here. In this, in this story, what is actually going on here? Two questions. Is, is the nobleman going around to his servant saying, how much business have you transacted? In other words, effort. How much effort have you made? Or how much has been gained by your trading? How much are your returns? Now, um, if, you, if you know anything about math, if you read the returns here, these good servants had very good returns. I don't know if you're into the stock market or not, but these are very, very strong returns. One with many zeros after it, like really good return. If I was a stockbroker and I was presenting this, I'd have, a, I'd have a billion clients because the return of investment is massive here, right? So, so when we look at this here, what is actually going on? From a Western mindset, this is how we can tend to fall into the trap. We tend to think or can think that when it comes to faithfulness to God, it has more to do with what I have seen done versus how faithful have I been, even if nothing comes out of it as far as I know. So you talked about working with children. I worked with children too for years. And sometimes you hear the great stories of them coming to faith in Christ. And sometimes you can slug it out for a year and not see very much go on. So here's the question. The nobleman who left, went to a far country, and is returning. What's he more interested in? How is he determining whether you've gained those talents that he entrusted you with? Is it by, well, Lord, I saw 10 children brought to Christ? Or is it, Lord, I invested the time, the energy, and the resources, and I actually presented your truth to 100 children this year? Which are the two markers that we're going by? You see, when it comes to the story here, it has nothing to do with the actual return of investment. It has to do with how faithful you are with the gifts you've been given. And in fact, depending on the, 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 the version you read, and I think the version uh, that we heard today had it, ESV has it as well, it has more to do with um, uh, uh, the faithfulness that comes from the return. It's not, it's not about, at the end, look how much I did. It's more, uh, more about, look at the gift you gave me, and look what I did with it. So it's not even about, look who I am. It's look at what your gift did. All I did was kind of like plug and play, you know? Uh, you look at it from, a, from a, my, 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 my parents. They went away 
I, I used this story recently with Jacob. My parents went away for a few weeks. They hadn't gone away since the pandemic started. And uh, Jacob, his school is right next to my parents' house. So my mother asked him if, if he would water her plants while she was gone. And believe it or not, Canada actually can get warm and the, the snow can actually disappear. And uh, it, it's actually pretty hot right now. People wonder why we'd come to Florida, but it's, it's good weather right now. And, and the flowers will grow, but they need to be watered, as you know. And so Jacob was, was left with the responsibility to water the flowers. Now, I can tell you this. They, there was a day it looked like they were withering and dying. So I, I kind of rescued him a bit and I, walked, I watered it extra long. But when my mother came home, those flowers had really blossomed well. They grew really, really well. Jacob and I are not responsible for how well they grew. It's God, right? The soil, the sun, the temperature, all of those were needed to be in a, in a position of growth. But we were called to partner in the process, and our job was to water. See, that's what it means in this story, to be gifted by God. It doesn't mean that I am going to do it and look at me and my. It has more to do with God gave me this. So am I going to press the right buttons at the right time? He gave this to me. I can't take responsibility for my ability to do that. But I was responsible to do those things. You see, that's how a gift works. And when we think that the gift is something given so that it's I and my, we miss the point. But in the story here, these good servants recognize it's your gift. I was just faithful at the work. That's what you and I are called to do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last point here, the reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility. I know some of you might be retired, so don't, don't take this negatively. But I read this here. The servant whose pound produced 10 was not given a generous pension, a paid vacation, or a villa on the sea. He was appointed a ruler of 10 more cities. Oh, man. Are you telling me in the future there is no retirement? Actually, from a biblical standpoint, yes. But we never really retire, do we? Any of you that might be experiencing what we would call retirement, you've just transitioned from one responsibility to a new responsibility. So it is, so it is with Christian service. To those who are faithful in the end, in the age to come, we read of a new heaven, new earth being brought together. Exactly how that reality will work, having heaven and earth together, it's, it's quite exciting, to be honest. I, I don't know exactly how it's all going to transpire, but it's going to be exciting. And I think I'm so excited because it's like I got my ticket. I know I'm going there, right? So it's part of the excitement of knowing where you're going to be. But when we get there, the responsibilities of the future is not going to be about sitting back and drinking a pina colada. It's going to be about responsibility, work, worship to the king and to God. And that will be wonderful work. It's not going to be the tireless, uh, you know, the sin part will be gone. The, the pain will be gone. But we were meant to be people who do things. And that's what these people are doing. Good, faithful servant, trust you with more. That means there's more to do in eternity. You know, this idea of dying and going up into the sky and floating on the, on the, on the clouds, and that's the reality of the future. We, that, that's actually a Greek mindset been around for 2,000 years plus, and we haven't got rid of it. And many Christian circles are still stuck with that mindset, right? We watched a commercial recently with Philadelphia Cheese. They still do those commercials, right? That is not the future. The future, I envision in my own mind, is a little more work, serve, love, and peace. It's a different mindset, right? That's the mindset that these servants are given by the noblemen. That was a little story. I, I thought this was uh, an interesting story. A Bible scholar used to visit. This was when the Soviet Union came to its end, and you had a fragmentation of some of those countries that became independent. 
uh, this Bible scholar would go to Latvia and he would visit the Luther Academy. And when he visited the Luther Academy, he once asked the admission school how it was that they determined students for seminary. And uh, this is what they said. They said uh, their number one question that they would ask in that period of time, that time period, was, when were you baptized? And he asked, the Bible scholar asked the question, why? And the admissions school said, the admissions uh, department said, if they were baptized during Soviet rule, then they risked their lives and compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after the liberation of the Soviets, we often would ask them many more questions. Do you understand why? Let me give you a personal example. When I was baptized, I think I was 12 years old. It was like a, it was like a big party. I mean, even unsafe family. My parents, we come from big families. They came. I, I got like, I got jackets from some of them because they don't know what to do, right? When we go to like religious functions, when a child's baptized in the Catholic Church, where you give them like, you know, money and things like that. So these people came. They didn't know what to expect, right? So they're giving me like, here's a coat for you. Here's this, right? It was a different world. When my parents were saved, because they were the first in their homes to do it, they were abandoned by their family. Heavier cost, right? See, baptism is usually a public showing to the world who you are identifying yourself with. And in our Western society, many of us saturated in good Christian communities, which is wonderful, we may have lost sight of what it's like for some to pay the heavy price. So we have Iranians at, at, at Langstaff, and uh, they know that if any of those things get back, that their family will be persecuted in Iran. One of them plays a very active role in, in our church community, but we always ensure that when we do certain things, we never put his name in the public, like on a website or anything like that. Why? Because there's consequences for how he lives. That didn't stop him from being baptized in his wife. It didn't stop him from seeing a number of friends and family members saved. They're now part of the church. Amazing how God works, right? But there's a price to pay to stand and say, I belong to this king. And the most dangerous time for a Christian, if you could use such a word, is between Jesus' first coming and his return. That's the most dangerous time. After that, there's no danger, right? The king's here. Everything's fine. But if there's any time of danger, and by the way, the danger pales in comparison. It reminds me of the Lord when we read in Scripture that the shame of the cross to him was a light thing compared to the joy of the glory that was before him. We should live in the same mindset. But we shouldn't forget that the most dangerous time of anyone is between when the king leaves and when the king returns. But it's also the time when we can show most faithfulness. It'll be easy to be faithful when he's standing right beside me, right? Physical form. Very easy to be faithful then. This is the opportunity we have today to show our true love and affection for him. Okay, the un... Oh boy, I talked too much. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up quick. So, the unfaithful servant. Let me, let me give you a few points with him. Number one, he hid... Hiding God's gift is to betray the one who gave it. If we hide our gifts from God... We're, we're not being accountable. We're not being good stewards. The servant who hid his pound was not dismissed, but instead judged unfaithful. And in the end, the gift was taken from him. It's a unique part of the story. I don't want to get into all the details, but I want you to think about that. I would have said, you're out of here. But in some ways, the nobleman shows grace. The whole story, he shows grace. Even the last group of people, he shows grace. Now, I, I, this, this part of the, the story might, might sound weird unless you understand the Eastern mindset unfaithfulness will distort the disobedient servant vision of the master. And we got that clearly from the story here. This led him to radically misjudge his master's nature, but God, the nobleman in the story, decides to challenge him just the same. Let me explain it to you. What did the last guy say? Oh, I know you're a really tough guy. 
Like, 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 there's one thing to know you're in trouble. There's another thing to say, like, I'm going to disrespect the man after he comes back, right? I know you're actually a really, really, like, terrible guy. You take things that don't belong to you. You touch things that are not yours. Would you ever talk like that? That's wild talk. Like, you're just asking to just, like, whack, whack, right? This is his, this is the, the way he presents. His worldview of the nobleman is that he's not a nice guy. Now, here's the interesting part. Because Jesus is telling the story. And we know that he's the nobleman. So he's telling it from his view. He decides to challenge the unfaithful servant. I'm going to tell you why, how he, he challenged him. Uh, the Gauls and the Bedouins were two tribal groups that, to, that were known in history for having a very weird worldview, the way they saw the world. The Gauls were tribal groups from France. The Bedouins were from the Middle East. In fact, it was Bedouin shepherds that found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they're still around in existence today. Both these groups, these tribal groups, have some very odd ways of seeing the world. One is when it comes to growing your own crops. They both believe, both tribal groups believed, that it was more honorable to steal the crops of your neighbors than it was to plant them yourself. I know it sounds weird, right? taking something that doesn't belong to you. But those societies were designed, probably some leader started the process and the families carried on the tradition. And if you, if you rob your neighbor at harvest time, you were considered more noble than growing your own crops. So the Benduins lived during Jesus' time. He decided to tell this servant's story and play it out. So he said, so you thought the nobleman, the nobleman speaking here, so you thought I was the kind of guy, like a Benduin? who takes what doesn't belong to me and steals what's not mine? If that's true, how come you didn't take my talent and bring it over to the bank and at least I would have made interest? Now, if you know anything about Jewish history or Jewish law, you're not allowed to make interest on your neighbor. It was against Jewish custom. They weren't allowed to do it. It's part of the law. So what was Jesus saying through the nobleman? Very, very simple. If you had the wrong impression of me as the nobleman, then at least you should have carried it out in faithfulness and invested the money. That's what he was saying. What he was really doing was telling the, the, the servant, you're not faithful at all. It's just an excuse. I find that quite remarkable because in the end it tells me that even if I'm not perfect at everything, and I don't think I will be, God is going to judge my faithfulness to him. My desire to do what I believe is right before him. And he's going to change me along the way, and I'm going to learn things I didn't know about myself and about the world and about others around me. But in the end, his assessment of his servants is based on their faithfulness to him. Saul of Tarsus, I'm going to tell you something. This might sound weird. He was a pretty faithful guy when he was on that road to Damascus. He just had the wrong impression of God. And when he finally got stopped in his tracks, he said, Who are you? It must have been a real scary moment when he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But he immediately says, What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? See, that man had a, had a mindset to be faithful. He just was in the wrong direction. I believe he was like, a, he thought of himself as an Elijah or as an Eleazar. He thought through zeal and excitement against idolatry and blasphemy, I'm going to do good for God. And then God said, no, no, you got the wrong God. It's me right here. And he changed course, changed course. This servant wasn't a Paul, a Saul. This guy was just a scoundrel at the end because he really didn't believe it. If he really believed that was his nobleman, he would have invested in the bank, and that's what the nobleman says. This is a good statement. My wife gave this to me a few weeks ago. Christianity in America would radically change if we understood that taking the Lord's name in vain as claiming the name of Jesus without doing the work of Jesus instead of just saying something that we claim, like, oh, my God. 
Blasphemy is when people stand and say, I belong to Jesus, and they act like the devil from Monday to Saturday. That's blasphemy because you're giving the wrong impression of who God is. The good servants were doing a good job. That bad servant was doing a bad job hiding his gift because that's not who the nobleman was. All right, the last group. I got two minutes and I'll finish with it. This would be my gospel application, though I think everyone in this room has the gospel saturated in their brain, their mind, and their heart, which is good, but you can never get enough. So here's a little more for you today. The wayward people are in this, are in this story. They were the ones who did their best. Their desire was that the nobleman would not become the king. For Archelaus, that's exactly what happened. The Jewish people did not like him. So they went with him to Rome and they petitioned so that he wouldn't be ruler over them. So the people of the day understood this. Here's the one point I'm going to leave you. And it's a, I think it's an interesting one. The nobleman says, take these people and off with their head. But the story ends abruptly. And their heads are not cut off, at least not yet. Here's the interesting thing about Eastern culture. It would kill Hollywood. Is that they never end the story the way you want it ended. They end you, I sometimes say this, they end you on a cliffhanger. And you're like, what's going to happen next? I, I, I don't know. And that's how the story leaves you. The story of uh, the good Samaritan. What happened to that guy in the inn? Did he ever see the Samaritan again? Did he recover? I don't know. What about the story of uh, the prodigal? It's really the prodigal God with the two sons. Whatever happened to the older son? Did he finally repent? Did he come back into the party? Did he figure himself out? Did he go away and never return? I don't know. Look at all the parables. You go through story after story. They leave you on a cliffhanger. Why? The graciousness of the nobleman. Jesus is telling the story. Off with their heads. But there's always room for grace. The story is not over. If they were in that story, they heard the story, and they were the wayward people, they still had an opportunity to be saved. That's the truth of the gospel. The gospel reminds us of who we are as sinners. It reminds us of where we're headed without the love of God, but it always gives an invitation to come into the good of it, no matter how bad. My, my dad, years ago, he was connected to all kinds of interesting people, one of the uh, godfathers of one of the main crime families in Toronto. It's a long story, but somehow my dad, he helped him without knowing who he was. And then when my mother found out, she wanted nothing to do with it because she thought he'd get killed one day by being too close to the guy. But the guy was a very, he really respected my dad because my dad rescued him and my dad didn't know who he was. It's a, it's a bit of a story I'd have to tell you sometime. But my dad decided when he was done, when he knew who he was and he was done doing business with him, my dad decided to invite him out to the gospel. Went to see him and told him, I, 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 I can't do any more work for you. And he explained why. And the guy says, well, your wife's a wise person. She understands. Yes, okay. He says, but he says, I, I'd like you to come and hear the gospel. It changed my life. And my dad took a little Bible and he pulled it out of his little pocket. You know what the man said to him? He said to my father, he said two things. He said, number one, he says, nobody, nobody, he says in my life, has ever, ever had an interest in my soul. And the second thing he said, he said, Mike, I've done things that he says God would never forgive me. And you know what my father told him? The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And after that interaction on a Sunday night, we used to do it on a, on a Sunday night, beautiful car drives up to this little tiny building in downtown Toronto. A guy gets out with armored guards. Nobody knows who he is. He walks in, Dad says, beautiful suit, rings on both his hands. People there, oh, hi, nice to see you, not recognizing, not knowing who he was. And he sat there, and he heard the gospel message. That's the nobleman. 
That's the heart of the nobleman. Always reaching out. Off with their heads. Judgment is coming. But there's always a moment, an opportunity to turn and to come into the good of the king who's coming back again. I hope these thoughts would be an encouragement to all of us, saved and unsaved alike. I don't have time for that story, but I'll close with uh, a Mother Teresa quote. A British journalist once asked Mother Teresa how she kept going, knowing that she could never meet the needs of all the dying in the streets of Calcutta. And to that statement, she replied, I am not called to be successful. I am called to be faithful. That's the point of the story today. The point is about not how successful you are. There's many preachers and evangelical people out there that will tell you they saw millions and millions and millions and they have very empty lives that have been exposed to the truth of what, the way they lived. It's not about success. It's about faithfulness to God. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your mercy and kindness to us. We're so thankful we came to know the, the nobleman. We're thankful that he's entrusted us with gifts in our lives and that he has promised to return and to return in splendor and in glory and to return with a kingdom that will last forever. We give thanks for this. We pray to bless us today, bless us in the week to come. Help us to show uh, uh, this king to our world and that uh, we might uh, be faithful servants in the little things, not just the big things of life, but in everything we do, our actions with our spouses and our children and our neighbors and, and, and in every aspect of our day, that we may become more and more faithful to the Lord Jesus. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.